Welcome to Black, Brown, and Bilingue, where our mission is to unite the black and brown communities through education, storytelling, and community engagement. Bilingue. I am one of your hosts, Lisa Jacobson. And I'm your other host, Maurice McDavid. The vision of Black, Brown, and Bilingue is to be part of creating a world in which Black and Brown identities are affirmed, bilingualism and biculturalism are nurtured, and equity is the driving force behind all that we do. You know, when we took some time and thought about uh, why a podcast and why us, um, you know, we came really down to, to these two answers. And, um, you know, I think uh, number one is that we both are uh, millennials and in positions of leadership in our school district. Both of us uh, operate as building principals and wanting to bring uh, those voices forward. Yes, for us, it is very important to um, have a platform to share some of our perspectives revolving around education, race, culture. And I know that in particular for me, there are not a lot of groups out there or podcasts for Latinas in leadership roles, particularly in education. And so it was very important that we brought that forward. Absolutely. Looking to bring those marginalized voices to center stage. And so uh, you're here at Black, Brown, and Bilingue. And again, we thank you for joining us. Yes, our title for today is A Brother and a Latina Walk into a School. So what you can expect is really the journey of our careers, where we are today, and really going back in time to how we ended up as building principals in the same district. Absolutely. So, uh, Lissette, um, you, you've mentioned it um, already, um, you know, that we currently work together, but this is not actually where our careers started together. Uh, and so uh, you and I um, both began our teaching career uh, in the DeKalb School District. And, um, and from there, we've done our master's program together. Uh, we have gone into leadership uh, at, at similar times and now are actually back working in the same district. Um, but I want to take it back, okay? I want to I wanna take it back for a moment here. And I want you to think back to that new teacher orientation. Uh, <laughs> you walked in. Just, just help me, uh, you know, visualize what, what were some of the thoughts that you were having on that, on that day? It was very ecstat ecstatic to be... Um, working alongside my cooperating teacher, I actually secured a first grade bilingual position um, where my cooperating teacher would be my colleague. And I was nervous. I was excited. And you know what? I'll be honest. I had no intention of staying in the cow. It's a community that's vastly different from the one that I grew up in. But at that time, there was really no talk of that teacher shortage. So it was very competitive. It, everything, you know, at NIU, our, our um, interviewing seminars, it was like, you have to really bring your A game because 
there are so many applicants with such few positions to fill. And so I remember being just excited and blessed that I got a job. So I walk in and you know, when you walk in and you're, you're a minority, you do that quick scan around the room and quickly realized that I was the only Latina in the room. And then there was you, Maurice, on probably like the left-hand side at the top row. And you were just yakking away. And I was like, okay, <laughs> this guy is loud. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, again, you know, I got to put on for the culture. I got to put on for the culture. Um, uh, you know, so one of the reasons I was able to be so loud is because my experience had been slightly different. Um, while I had uh, attended undergrad down in Galesburg, Illinois at Knox College and student taught down there, I had come back uh, in the fall of 2010 after student teaching and worked as an instructional assistant in the DeKalb School District. So then after that, uh, in that spring of 2011, I was hired on uh, to teach um, middle school in the district. And so walking into that new teacher orientation, I did not necessarily feel as isolated or as new because I knew people there. And actually, uh, I was a, a what we call here a, a townie, right? I, mm -hmm. I uh, had been in schools. I was born and raised in DeKalb, had gone pre-K through 12 in DeKalb. So I knew a lot of the adults in the room as people who had poured into my educational experience. So it was a little bit easier to be louder and to be mm -hmm. bolder. But what I will say is I... I too, I thought, okay, well, I wonder who else they're hiring. And uh, I began to scan the room and said, okay, is, is it just me? Am I the only uh, person of color coming in? And I do remember seeing you, Lisette, and, and uh, I'm going to share a little something right here on this podcast that I have not shared uh, prior to this. When I saw Lisette and I, I heard Jacobson, uh, which was her married uh, name, uh, I was not sure if she was Latina or not. I knew that she was bilingual. And so that was going to connect us because um, mm. I, I speak Spanish as well. But I was not sure if she was Latina. Um, obviously, we've discovered that later on. And I, I have felt um, uh, that, uh, as you like to say, you know, that Latin heat, you know what I'm saying? And, and <laughs> uh, that, that you and I have had. Bring so, the sass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's all right. That's though. funny. That's funny you mentioned that because I get that a lot. And it wasn't until my professional career and, you know, just being an adult that I realized um, how much privilege I have from being a light-skinned Latina. And that is something that is very pervasive in the Latin community. And it's really a shame. And, and I feel like that could be another episode, right? But I've gotten that a lot. In fact, when, you know, how the, the teacher tags are outside of the classroom parents would come in and they'd look in the room and I'd be sitting there and they, they thought I was the assistant or they didn't think that I was Mrs. Jacobson. So it's been very interesting to be a Latina in education with that last name. Absolutely. So, so uh, Lisette, you mentioned um, first grade bilingual. Yeah. Take me from new teacher orientation to that moment where now all of a sudden you have uh, 20 plus little six-year-olds uh, who are bilingual and looking to, to engage with you in Inglés y Español, los dos. Uh, Ay, mis lindos. You know, uh, tell me about that first day of school. Oh, I was so 
ecstatic. And you know, when you're young and you're a new first year teacher, you're bright eyed, bushy tailed. And, and I don't think you really understand the full scope of responsibility until that very first day. And so I, I vividly remember my students were lining up and we were getting ready to go into the building. And as we were walking in, my building principal just gave me this look like, oh, good luck. She patted me on the back and, and, and it was surreal, but it was very nerve wracking at the same time. Um, but this was also to the, the realization of a dream because I've always wanted to be a teacher. So it was very, a beautiful moment that you never forget, but you almost have to be a little naive, to be honest, because it's such a huge responsibility and you really don't realize the scope of it. Yeah, and I want to come back to that dream piece, um, but, but we'll get back to that because I just want to share, you know, I had a similar experience that that first day uh, we had all of the eighth graders sitting in the main gym uh, at uh, Clinton That was the name of the building. And um, one by one, we called out the kids in our homeroom. And as I stepped forward, it was my turn to call out the students. I'm shaking. My voice is shaking. Oh. Um, and, and I'm calling these kids out by name. And all of a sudden, I have 32 kids lined up behind me. And we make our way upstairs to my classroom. And my thought process that entire time is, it is now my job to keep these kids entertained and safe <laughs> for the next hour and 15 minutes. Because we had a special rotation that day. Um, but it was my job to, to talk to them about how to be eighth graders when it was my first day being an eighth grade teacher. You know, 10 years <laughs> prior to that, I had been an eighth grader. You know, wow. and so uh, it really was um, just mind boggling. And I had several of those experiences, I think, throughout education. I ran our, our, our district, Washington, D.C. trip, which was a, mm -hmm. taking a group of eighth graders. And the first trip I took, I was 25 years old. And I remember thinking, these parents trust me a 25-year-old, <laughs> to take their eighth graders uh, all the way to Washington, D.C. Um, but again, that takes me back to that first day and just feeling oh. like, but, but what happened was I stood there and I began to talk to the students and all of a sudden something clicked and it just happened and I was home in, mm -hmm. in, in that moment of teaching and, uh, and I still feel that way in working with education. and. and oh. Let me ask you this, like you had the added challenge of, you know, you're working with eighth grade students and you being fresh out of college, you know, you really had to um, distinguish yourself, right? Like I am the teacher because you're so close in age, even though it may not seem like it, you really are. Whereas for me, I think it was a little bit easier to demand the, the classroom, right? Um, the respect because they're little first graders, but did you feel that challenge of being a young black man in the classroom in front of these eighth graders? Was that like an added pressure for you? So I'll say a couple of things. I think number one, it helps to be a six foot one black man. <laughs> when it comes to demanding respect, um, uh, that that does help because you know I was a I was a football coach. Um, I was coaching football at that point at the high school level, and um, you know had played football, had actually coached at the college level while I was student teaching. Um, so I was used to working, and, and in that case, these were students who I had played with the year before, and now I was coaching them. So I think that that was beneficial, but you, you talk about that age uh, gap piece 
being really small, I want to share this quick story. I, I was, you know, telling the kids uh, something about when I was a kid or when I got my first cell phone and, and one of them was, oh, Mr. McDavid, you're so old. Mr. McDavid, you're so old. And um, I said, guys, I'm only 10 years older than you. When I'm 40, you'll be 30 and we'll all be adults. And so this young lady raises her hand and she says, so Mr. McDavid, does that mean if things don't work out between you and your wife, we can date? <gasps> no way! And I said, you know what, let me go back to being old. You're right, let me go back to being old. Um, yeah. But but what I will say is I, I think <laughs> my teaching style was such that relationships were gonna be key. I could clown with the kids. I was willing to, to play the dozens with the kids. I was willing, you know, I freestyle battled the kids on Friday if we had a homework percentage that was high enough. Um, so, so I think I was able to maintain that position of authority while also um, engaging in a lot of um, memory making. Yeah, no, mine came through that uh, motherly, uh, you know, Hispanic woman or Latina woman, and I just treated them as my own kids, and, and it worked. And so I think that definitely was easier for me. I do remember that when I went into the middle school, because I eventually became an eighth grade teacher myself, and one of the things that struck me the most was how different my interactions were with those students. And I was very um, aware of that age gap. And so I did everything in my power down to how I dressed, right? Made sure that I had a, almost a blazer and nice slacks every day because I wanted to have that, that distinction. So can you tell me though, why education for you or where, can you tell me a little bit about your educational journey? Yeah, so you know, I'll I'll start um, thinking even uh, about my experience uh, as a child in a classroom. Um, you know, one of the things that I always share with people when I'm talking about my desire to become an educator is the fact that I did not have my first African American male teacher until I was 21. Wow, I was a junior in college, and I was sitting in an American history class with Professor Conrad Hamilton. And I loved American history. That's what I taught at the eighth grade level uh, for the first few years of my career. And um, I was enraptured by this class. And I thought, I mean, I love history, but is that it? And it finally hit me that for the first time in my life, I saw somebody that looked like me at the front of the classroom. And he dressed sharp, always had on a tie or a bow tie, sometimes a sweater, um, half black, half Japanese. Um, he told the story about how him, uh, I'm sorry, about how his father and mother had to go to another state in order to get married. Wow. Uh, there were still anti-miscegenation laws. Um, and, and again, that personal connection to history um, that, that, that my parents could have shared, I think, made really a, an impact. So I think back, you know, about my experience um, in, in education, and I just... Um, I had tremendous teachers. Uh, I had people that I really cared of, cared about and that I know cared about me. In fact, some of those folks that I still talk to, uh, even to this day, that I've taught alongside. And, um, and, and I think um, that really my, my ending up in that career, um, even unbeknownst to me, was definitely uh, directly related to a lot of uh, those great uh, educators that 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 I had, um, and again, I mean that was before we were talking even anti-racist education. 
It was just people who, who I knew, you know, cared. Um, so I think that makes a, makes a huge difference, definitely. So, you know, uh, for me, bilingualism has played such a, a role in my life. And, you know, the, the name of the podcast is Black, Brown, and Bilingual, right? You're, you're Black, I'm Brown, and we're both bilingual. Um, but when I think of my experiences as, as a child in the classroom, I really felt like my bilingualism was stripped away from me. So back then, bilingual programming was nowhere near what it is today. And it was, you know, get you in, get you to learn English as quickly as possible, and then you're, you're immersed in all English. I actually was enrolled in a bilingual kindergarten class, but I was speaking to like the other kids in the classroom in English. And so I, to be honest, I don't even really remember. I just know that my teacher may have recommended that I get tested for the English only kindergarten. And they pulled me into a room, they asked me some questions, and I, I must have answered them well enough because then my classroom was switched. And so then I was in an all English class. And I hear, and in fact, you've seen that, that tweet or that, those posts on social media where it's like, how old were you when you had your first um, black teacher? And even though I'm Latina, my first teacher was, my kindergarten teacher was black. And she played such a huge role in me wanting to be a teacher. And it's interesting because even though she wasn't Latina, I knew she was different than Absolutely. a white teacher. She was, not, she was not Latina, but she was different. And she's really the reason why I love to read. And she taught me how to read and she really instilled a love of books. I remember flipping couch cushions, looking for for change so that I could go to the Scholastic Book Orders and look for the dollar. You know, when you scroll down the list and you're scrolling and, oh, that's a dollar. I can get that one. <laughs> and so she really instilled that love. And so I feel very blessed. And I really think that because I had her as my kindergarten teacher, I felt like I could do it too, even though she wasn't Latina. And then fast forward. So that was in Chicago. Then we moved to um, Waukegan. And then in sixth grade, we had a long-term sub. Ms. Coleman for sixth grade social studies, and she was African-American. And then seventh grade, Mr. Johnson, I adore that man, um, also African-American. So I actually have had pretty um, uh, diverse teachers. And you know what? I know that's not the norm, but to me, that was my norm. It wasn't until I became a teacher that I realized, wow, not everyone has been that lucky because it really has been a blessing. Yeah, so, so recognizing that statistically speaking, right, our national teacher population is, is about 2% African-American men. Mm. We, we know that it is not the norm. And yet, uh, my children um, will have been very fortunate that they have had, uh, up to this point, uh, nothing but African-American teachers. My son is in third grade, and he has had nothing but African-American teachers. And so, there is a shift that is happening there. There is uh, something that that's that's going on, you know. At the high school, there was one African American teacher, and he was the band director. And uh, unfortunately, I can't carry a tune, uh, even in a brown paper <laughs> bag. And so, uh, although I have used this quarantine time to um, tickle the ivories a little bit, so I'm learning. But you know what? I will say I saw you dancing to that traditional Mexican music 
when you went in to meet your stat for this upcoming year. And you've always said you have two left feet, but you did all right. Uh, por la gracia de Dios. Um, <laughs> it was only God's grace. It was only God's grace. So, um, you know, he didn't want me to be embarrassed in front of my, my, my new staff uh, right there in that moment. You know, so, so I, I think uh, when it comes to education and, and thinking back on our own experiences, I wonder for you, did representation or the lack thereof uh, play a role in, in motivating you to become an educator? So, um, like I had spoken to um, previously, my kindergarten teacher really was a huge reason why, and I do think representation played a big role. I come from a family of educators, though. I have family in Mexico who, who teach, um, so I feel like it's, it's in me. But I think a big one, you know, it's funny, I did not want to be a bilingual teacher. I, I actually was very much against it because I still came in from that deficit standpoint, right? Because that's what bilingual programming used to look like. And so um, I really didn't believe in bilingual education until I learned and I knew better. But I think there are a lot of Latinos. I mean, even now I see parents that are like, no, English only, it's fine. And so they're not well, realizing that. It's not a lastima, no? I was just about to say. What a shame. I, 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 it took me, you know, four years in high school, another four years in college, studying abroad in, in, in Spain. And still, I probably speak Spanish at about a seventh or eighth grade level. And, and, and that's being kind, you know. Um, <laughs> but to have that opportunity to, to have it be a part, you know. Um, but I, I also understand, you know, culturally where, where um, it can appear that, See, it's una lastima, and you know, um, so, but here I think a bigger piece is that the Spanish language is not a language of status. And we have to really elevate the status. And so for me, it was never elevated. I have vivid memories of walking into a parent teacher conference, and I can't even believe I'm about to put this out in the universe, but feeling deep shame that I had to be that child to translate for my parents at a conference. It was like my world's colliding. And that is probably the first time I realized that I was different, was in second grade, Mrs. Stewart's class, and my dad comes in for a parent-teacher conference, and I started to translate, and I just sunk in my chair. Wow. Because I adored, adored my teachers. I mean, I've been blessed. I lo I've loved all my teachers, but I adored my teacher. And so then here's my father, who I also adore. Um, but I, was, I felt deep shame. The teacher really didn't say anything. She was very graceful, but it's very important for teachers to understand that, is that you may not necessarily say anything explicitly, but your students are still receiving messages. And so that really was the beginning of me wanting to keep my home life and my school life as far away from each other as possible. You know, I was the kid that when notices were sent home, I wouldn't show it to my parents. I wouldn't even give them papers because I did not want that. And I would beg my older sister, hey, can you come to the school and pretend to be my mom? Because I didn't want to have to translate. And so it's that, that, 
that was something that was very hard to grapple with. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized, man, I really have to grapple with this. I really need to unpack this because there's a lot there. So it's interesting because, you know, for you, that representation piece was not necessarily in what people looked like, but it was the representation of the language, right? It was represent because there was not representation of that home language uh, that there was that discord. I think for me, that that representation was absolutely something visual. I can think a lot about the images of of black people that that I grew up seeing. Mm. The images that I grew up seeing were on MTV or BET or ESPN. Uh, you know, I we were we were a little after the Cosby Show, right? So so it's not like we were growing up watching, you know, growing up watching a, a doctor and a lawyer. Um, I I did watch the Cosby Show. Well, see, okay, power to and you. Family matters um, and not, oh, we family did. matters. Dig it, little family matters. Um, you know, but but still, I, a lot of that representation for me was absolutely, you know, it was West Coast connection. It was, you know, it was um, uh, to live and die in L.A. Um, and so when I think about those things, um, I think that impacted uh, even, you know, I'll share with you, this was, man, this was spring of 2005. I was at a church service in Harvey and I was talking to uh, a, a young lady there who was in high school she was black and i told her i was going to go to school and become a lawyer or a doctor and she said what those are white people jobs you can't do that mm. oh that's, well, that's, that's a big one that's 2005 yeah. that, that was a mindset so so for me education was something that kind of fell into me uh, uh i went to knox uh with a pre-law mindset i uh, got closed out of a political science class and um, instead ended up taking the school and society class. And um, it was Ed 201. And during that class, we went and saw the movie Freedom Riders. Uh, Freedom Riders. Yes, and, uh, and Hilary Schwenk's character says at one point in the movie, I was gonna become a lawyer, but by time you're defending a kid in the courtroom, it's too late and the real battle is in the classroom. And, yeah. and I literally went the next week and signed up to be a an education major and so my uh fight in the classroom has been and always will be one that is is based in social justice it's mm. one that's based in the uh the, the idea that knowledge is power and i'll take that a step further applied knowledge is power it is when we can i saw that tweet yes yeah. yes yes so you know what to you know just to go off of what you're saying too that's what drove me into education is that desire to really affirm their students our students and their identities and to make sure that they know that i see them that i see their humanity and that i value who they are because no one explicitly said it like that and like you said with the language that was such a huge part of me that I ignored and kind of shelved for many, many years until someone showed me what an asset it was. And so, like I said, and you think about our students. I, I don't know how many, I think by the year 2040, over half of our student population will be Latino, will be brown children. And what messages are they receiving in regards to language? 
And again, no one really said anything negative about Spanish, but somehow I still internalized that. So I became a teacher so that I could affirm students' identities. And really without that strong sense of self, you, I just feel like that leads to your success. If you stand firm in who you are, you will make it far. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Lisette, for the sake of our listeners, uh, let's, let's get ready to wrap this up. I am just ecstatic to be working on Black, Brown, and Bilingue uh, with you. And I am excited uh, that our listeners have joined us for this first episode of, of what I hope to be many more episodes to come. I know we've got some exciting topics that we have planned uh, coming up. Lisette, you want to tell them uh, about a couple of the topics that you're excited about? I am looking forward to the black brown divide i think that with everything that is happening right now i know that i've joked with you maurice about keeping the black and brown divide alive <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's one topic i'm particularly interested in and excited to talk about another one is this idea of being not only black and brown and bilingue but also being millennial school leaders and some of those implications what are some of yours so, so a couple of them that, that I am looking forward to uh, most certainly is the conversation on what happens when, when you move up into that middle class and, and what happens to identity and being able to, to maintain that identity. And then the other piece, of course, as we talk about bilingualism, we uh, want to talk about bilingualism and quote unquote proper English. I gotta, I gotta just give you just a little taste. I saw a video the other day in which Candace Owens, no. um, and, and and if you know her, you know her, okay. But Candace Owens says that the reason that seventy five percent of our black boys don't do well on reading tests is because we speak Ebonics, uh, to which I would say shenanigans. That's absolute nonsense. I speak Ebonics on a regular basis and I read and have been reading at a college level for a long time. But again, we can talk about that more than uh, I'm looking forward to. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that too because we can even bring in uh, the Spanglish uh, debate too, right? And this whole idea of proper English, that's exciting. Um, but you know what, before we close out the show let's give people one thing that we want them to think about in terms like regardless of whether they are educators or not what is one thing that you would like the listener to walk away with yeah absolutely one thing that I would like the listeners to walk away with from today's show is just an understanding that whoever you are whatever you look like you uh, are not a monolith and yet you will carry the weight of representation. And so I want you to know uh, that it is important that you just be your best you every day because um, you know people are looking, people are looking and, and particularly for our educators of color, um, I know that the burden is heavy some days, but, but we've got to always be on our uh, best foot. Yeah, and I think for me, for all of the educators listening out there, um, it would be to make sure that you are saying things that uplift your students directly. Because going back to my point earlier, what my teacher didn't say spoke volumes. 
And so being cognizant of the fact that, you know, it is our duty to, our, to affirm our students' identities. It is our duty. Or like Michael Fullen would say, it's our moral imperative. Absolutely. Right. So, folks, thank you again for joining us today. If you are interested in finding out more information about Black, Brown, and Bilingue, you can follow our Facebook page at uh, Black, Brown, Bilingue, or you can follow us on Twitter at B-L-K-B-R-W-N Bilingue. And we are on Twitter. Um, and uh, then you can find our website information there. So again, thank you so much for joining us today. To sign off, I'm Maurice McDavid. And I'm Lisa Jacobson. Thank you and have a great rest of your day.